Yeah, so today's session is loneliness. So it's part of this a Modern Life mini-series that I'm running. The topic today is loneliness. Uh, and this was specifically requested by a couple of students. There is actually a loneliness czar now that was appointed by the government last year. The thing about loneliness is it's a very real thing and it can be measured. So there's a checklist and you, you fill out this checklist and you know, it'll tell you whether you're lonely or not. Just to give you an idea, there's a million people in London who don't have anybody that they can talk to about how they feel. The sum of people to whom we can talk to about how we feel, who we view as close friends, has been diminishing over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. And the reason for the focus on loneliness is because it's deeply correlated with a lot of health outcomes, physical and psychological health outcomes. I did a little bit of study in this area a while back, and the most enlightening work has been done by an American scientist who's tragically passed on recently by the name of John Cacioppo. He seemed to have quite considerable funding, understandably because of this correlation between poor health outcomes and loneliness. And so health authorities want to understand how they can combat loneliness if they can do anything through policy to enable that to happen. He set up a series of studies. He had quite a number of researchers working for him. And he was able to start off with a correlation such as, you know, if you're lonely, you're X amount more likely to have these health outcomes, for example. And we know about that. But then the thing is, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it that people who are unwell in these ways become lonely or is it loneliness that tends to cause it? So then there is a lot of work done to ensure that there's a thing called causality, which means that rather than the health outcomes causing the loneliness, the loneliness causes the health outcomes. And in line with what everybody expected in the human sciences, it turns out that loneliness affects your health negatively, physical and psychological health. The thing is, what is it? (laughs) And what it is, it's your natural drive to feel forced to stay within your group so we're not designed for any of this what we're designed for is nature so this is genetically so there's a lot of things about modern life that human beings aren't genetically designed for we're designed for living with about 150 people something like that not 8 million as an example that's a massive change We're also designed to live nomadically in nature. So we're in nature all the time. And we move from one place to another within nature, seeking food sources and ideal environments. And here we are, instead, living in a totally artificial world. And that has consequences. And one of the the consequences is a quite understandable perception of loneliness for a lot of people. One of the interesting studies that Cacioppo did, so once he'd identified, so these are lonely people and these are non-lonely people, they started interviewing them to discover about their their connections. What they learned was counterintuitive. They produced an app that buzzed people during the day and they gave 50% of the apps to lonely people and 50% to non-lonely people 
and it would buzz you during the day to find out if you were communicating with anybody. And on average, it turns out that lonely people don't have any less contact than non-lonely people, on average. Okay, so this is obviously, if you're isolated um, because of disability or illness or, or something like that, that's a different matter. And there's a clear causal effect there. If you're lonely, you, you might be the most gregarious person in the world, but if you can't get out to meet people, then, then that diminishes it. But if you take the average lonely person, uh, the average lonely person has quite a lot of contact. And the average lonely person is the person that has the average negative health outcome, so that can't be ignored. Then what they did is they dug a little bit deeper, and, and so what's the differentiator? What's, what's different between lonely and non-lonely people? And see, so it turns out that non-lonely people, when they interact, they get more fulfilled. It's very interesting that he used this word, fulfilment. They get fulfilment from the interactions. So they're energised by interactions with other people, and whereas the lonely folks weren't, not to the, to the same level. So they might have energising interactions, but they wouldn't be so common as the non-lonely people. So what, it, what that means is that non-lonely, you, what you're doing is you're, you're no more in, or less in contact than the lonely guys, but you're getting more out of your interactions, out of your connections with people. Next week, we'll be doing connection. Yeah. So I thought about this, and, and the word fulfillment stuck in my mind, and then it brought to mind something else, which is the Dalai Lama, who he's the head of the sort of Tibetan, biggest Tibetan Buddhist um, group. I need to clarify here, I am an agnostic. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm comfortable not knowing. I'm not a Buddhist. But the Buddhist tradition has curated the meditations that I teach for thousands of years, as has the Hindu tradition. So I've got a lot of respect for them, and I, I, I've learned a lot from them. And so the Dalai Lama, who's this world figure, he focuses on happiness. So he goes around the world doing what he can to help people be happy. And happiness is a very real thing. It's like loneliness. You get a checklist. In fact, you don't even get a checklist. There's a question. And the question is, overall, I am satisfied with my life on a scale of 1 to 10. Yeah? And it's a predictive science because you can look at somebody's life situation, you can look at their history, and you can generally predict how happy they're going to be. There's correlates. Uh, you know, these, these sort of people are happier and these sort of people are left ha less happier. But one of the things that the science of happiness hasn't done is they haven't defined happiness. They've just left it as you know, the answer to this question, which is fine. But the Dalai Lama popped up and he defined happiness. What he's actually done is provided a measure for happiness. And what he says is that happiness is fulfilment with neutral experiences. Yeah. As an example of a neutral experience, I always use waiting at a bus stop in the rain. Not being soaked under the... You know, that's not, it's not a neutral experience to be soaked. <laughs> but under a shelter. So maybe I should clarify that. Waiting at a bus shelter in the rain. Okay. And what fulfilment is, 
is the sense that you don't need anything more than you've already got. Yeah, so there you are. You're at the bus, bus stop. The bus is going to turn up at some point or another. And there's nothing polluting and contaminating that neutral experience. Because it's not a bad experience. But many people would nominate it as being a bad experience. They would perceive it to be irritating and frustrating and annoying. And you know, there'd be a desire for the bus to come and there's impatience arises. And so what happens is there's an unsatisfactoriness that gets in the way of our happiness. Take that unsatisfactoriness away and actually you're left with neutral experiences and to be absolutely clear, most neutral experiences are good experiences. So it's a good experience to be sitting waiting for the bus in the rain because you can listen to the sound of the rain drumming on the roof of the bus shelter, you can watch the water splashing in the puddles, you can see the colours, you can smell it, you can hear the whoosh of the cars. It's it's a, an intense, if you're capable of extracting the goodness from it, an intensely sensory experience. And then you can elevate that. So a happy person is happy at the bus stop. An unhappy person isn't. And then I thought about this and I thought, well, that's fulfillment's the same with interactions. Yeah. You, in, in the same way that you're learning to get the maximum from a present moment, just an ordinary, and remember, most of, vast majority of life is an endless series of neutral present moments with the occasional wonderful thing and the occasional horrible thing in it. But the mind doesn't live in that world. It lives in a world of adversities or the world of rewards, and everything else gets discounted. So mindfulness is the undistracted awareness of the experience of the present moment. We're not saying that there's no thought. Very important, that, because I notice there's a handful of newcomers in the room today. There's a lot of kind of fuzzy misinformation around about mindfulness, and it's allowed to continue because it doesn't get challenged but it doesn't matter about thought. Either I'm aware of my thoughts or I'm in them. Yeah. In other words, if, I, if I'm thinking about what might happen tomorrow, if I'm here and I'm noticing my breath and I'm aware that I'm sitting here and I'm aware that I'm thinking about tomorrow, that's fine. Yeah. I'm here and I'm thinking about tomorrow. But what happens is the mind captures you and it puts you in the image of tomorrow and the conversation that you're having with people, you're having it in your head. You're saying something to them, they're saying something to you. And all of a sudden you're transported to tomorrow. So you're not actually here. And that's called mind-wandering. So mind-wandering is not mindfulness. But thought, thought's part of mindfulness, as is, as is emotion. So it's not a, we're not trying to find this space without any of that. And so what mindfulness does is, is it helps us to connect ourselves to the present moment and through connection we develop and we'll, we'll focus on connection next week. Through connection we, we can develop all of the skills we need to extract the most, benefit the most from the present moment. And so it seems the same, well it is the same with communication. Back in the day if somebody was talking to me I would either be off on a tangent in my mind while they were talking to me 
or I would be trying to get to where they were going first so that I could have the right answer. Now, I just shut up and listen. <laughs> I feel that mindfulness can benefit lonely people we're able to learn, well, what I teach, the mindfulness-based resilience, you're learning stress management and emotional regulation techniques, and that helps you to, to deal with the friction that's inherent in connecting with other people. But as well as that, what it can do is it can help you to get the most out of your connections, because you then just become a receiver of information. You're not going to learn anything extra other than what the person's telling you, and then you're able to respond to them. All the guys will understand this, you know, you're having a chat with the other half and then they say the dreaded words, what was the last thing I just said? <laughs> and you guess. And half the time you get it right and half the time you get it wrong. Uh, that very, very, rare, very rarely happens. It does, does occasionally, uh, but it very rarely happens now. So what I, what's happened is I've learned to stay online, pretty much. Absolutely, it'll contribute to the quality of my communications has done massively. So what we're going to do today is a number of meditations. What, what I'm going to, I've decided to do is focus on gratitude and compassion. Those are just words and they're used to describe a whole area of meditation, gratitude meditation, compassion meditation. What they do is they will help us in our interactions with others and help us understand what our natural response is when we're encountering other people. And then we can learn to enhance that. But first of all, what we'll do is we'll start off with some mindfulness med meditation. And so what we're going to do is an exercise... I call it the meditation of no meditation for sound. And today's an excellent day for it, especially as we're going to do a, a walking meditation after the session. And so the way to do it is you can either close your eyes or look down in front of you just so you don't get distracted by anything that's going on around you. And allow yourself to be aware of all of the sounds around you. And we can do this, we start with the furthest sound usually. So we can hear children calling in the park or the sound of wind outside the building, people's voices. And then from time to time we might be able to hear traffic and airplanes and so on. And what that's doing is that's helping us to become aware that there's a big dome around us stretching in every direction. And that big dome, within it, all of the sound is available to us. We can notice all of the sound that happens in that dome. And what the, what the modern mind does is it picks out a sound and it stays focused on that sound. And then it might notice another sound and it focuses on that sound. So it's a little bit like a searchlight. But our genetic design enables us to notice all of that sound. So we're listening to everything, all happening at the same time. 
and it all combines into one sound in the same way that the individual instruments in an orchestra all combine into the sound of the theme that the orchestra is playing. So all those separate instruments become one instrument. And that one instrument, the theme of the present moment, is what we're listening to. And there's no instructions with this. So there's no goals, no expectations, you don't get anything from it. All that happens is you're aware of sound all around you. So the sound of my voice just becomes one of the sounds that you're aware of. So instead of listening intently to what I'm saying and tuning everything else out, instead you're allowing all of these sounds into your awareness. And this is what I call the meditation of no meditation for sound. So the sound of the wind, the windows banging, people talking, children calling out, dogs barking, movements in the building, movements in the room, sound of my voice. And every so often, to add to... the theme of the present moment, every so often I'll ring the bell. We'll just practice this, listening to all of these sounds for the next few minutes. It doesn't matter what's happening in the mind, doesn't matter how busy the mind is, if the mind wanders, thoughts, emotions, senses, doesn't matter. All we're doing is noticing all of this sound, the collection of all sound. mind will try to pick sounds out. When that happens, probably the best thing is to notice where you are in relation to the sounds. So we can use them to locate ourselves and to navigate. 
even with the eyes closed, we know where we are because we can hear the sounds, the direction they're coming from. And so locate yourself at the center of this bowl of sound that stretches in every direction. So this isn't a meditation, there's no expectations, no goals. You don't get anything from it. And now we're going to move to a slightly different exercise. And in this one, what we're doing, instead of noticing sound, we're noticing movement. And the movement we notice is the movement of the belly, just at the point where the belly meets the chest. It's the movement of the breath. So you're noticing the belly rising and falling. Rising and falling. It doesn't matter what happens, busy mind, wandering mind, thoughts, emotions, doesn't matter. Just noticing that movement. Just moving, tiny, tiny, tiny movement. The consensus is that that people prefer the listening exercise to the focusing on the belly exercise. So the listening exercise is, is frictionless. And so you can come back to it, come back to listening to everything. And notice there's a frictionlessness to it.
and then go back to noticing the movement of the belly. And it's still pretty frictionless, but it's a little bit less frictionless. There's an element of unsatisfactoriness creeps into it. Okay, so if you gently return your attention to your surroundings. So this, this is the kind of key mindfulness meditation. It's very simple. It's a process of noticing the breath. And ideally, we notice the breath in the nostrils. <clears throat> and we do that because when we're sitting or lying comfortably... The only movement in the body is the breath, and the place it's most obvious is the nostrils, because we've got the sharp coolness of the in-breath, which helps us to focus on the sensation. And so to meditate, if you place your elbows by your side, get your back as straight as is comfortable. So comfort first, then straight back. You don't have to sit up so you're not leaning against the backrest. But if you do lean against the backrest, make your back as straight as comfortable. Obviously, if you've got a bad back, you sit however you need to sit to diminish the discomfort. But other than that, with your back, say, against the backrest or, or even just sitting up, your elbows by the side. And then you'll notice that your head's probably tilted forward a little bit. So what you do is you look for the place where the skull is most comfortably balanced on top of the spine. So that comfort tells you that you're not using any muscles to hold your head up. It's not leaning forward or anything like that. And when you're not using the muscles, they're not tense. And when they're not tense, they're relaxed. Same with the back, shoulders, back and sides of the neck. What, what, what we're doing with this posture is just letting the tension out and then it's more comfortable to meditate and we're also reducing our stress by a notch because we maintain stress in the body and then if you place your tongue gently up against the back of the top teeth and you'll notice it's in contact with the sharp part of the bottom teeth, just gently. You find that you naturally breathe in and out through the nostrils. And then we're allowing ourselves to notice that sensation. Now, it's not essential to focus on the breath in the nostrils. You can notice the breath anywhere else in the body. Next best place is the belly. You're noticing the belly rising and falling. You can also notice the chest expanding and contracting and the upper back and the air hitting the back of the throat. Anywhere where you're aware of the rhythm and cycle of the breath. And that's the meditation, basically. What will happen, of course, is your mind will wander because this is the nature of the mind. Uh, especially the modern mind. 
Are we noticing the breath? The mind wanders. Return our attention to the breath and repeat. That's the, the four lines of this practice, which is at least 2,500 years old. Notice the breath. Mind wanders. Return to noticing the breath. Repeat. We'll just practice this for the next few minutes. I'll begin and end the meditation with a bell. This is called following the breath. Cool in breath, warm out breath. We're just noticing that rhythm and cycle. Just noticing the breath rising and falling. doesn't matter what's happening in the mind, doesn't matter how busy it is, doesn't matter if the thoughts are repetitive, noisy, irritating, frustrating, the mind's wandering a lot, doesn't matter. All we're doing here is getting familiar with the mind. That's the purpose of meditation. Become familiar with the mind. Nothing more, nothing less. So all the time we spend in the presence with the mind of the mind, we're getting to know it better.
the mind wanders a thousand times, all we do is gently, patiently, compassionately return our attention to the breath a thousand times. So breathing in, noticing whatever it is you can smell, noticing what you can taste, <coughs> the sounds around you, the sense of sitting, the feeling of being pushed into the ground, your feet being pushed into the ground, your body being pushed into the chair, and then gently in your very own time, return your attention to your surroundings. Okay, so they're all useful. They're all useful for our walking meditation um, later on. But that that last practice, what we're doing is practicing mind wandering in a nutshell. Yeah, that's why we've chosen something as neutral as the breath. There's nothing more neutral than the breath, because under normal circumstances we can't distinguish between good and bad breaths. So it's just a neutral experience. And so we're doing that, and the mind wanders. And we notice that the mind's wandered. So we're repeating, noticing that the mind's wandered. And and because we do it a lot, what happens is we train our subconscious. (coughs) Subconscious, when we're out and about, what happens is that we begin to notice that our mind's wandered. That's how we train mindfulness. So there's a, there's a good definition of mindfulness. There's many, many definitions of mindfulness, but one of my favourites is mindfulness is awareness of unawareness. Yeah, so when you're going along, your mind's wandering, you realise your mind's wandering. That moment, that's mindfulness. It's known as the moment of recognition. And we want to repeat it over and over again. The more we do it, the more it happens. The more it happens, the more we have the choice about how we use our minds. That's power is choice, nothing else. Power isn't money, power isn't wealth, power is nothing. Power is choice. If you have infinite choice, you have no ties, you've got nobody imposing any, anything on you, you have absolute freedom, so you can, you can do whatever you want. The mind, unfortunately, is trained to repetitively, persistently, continually go over those things in our life that it deems to be the most important. By noticing that that's happening, we then have the choice, and that choice brings up to us the power, so we become empowered. And then our relationship to the world changes. It's a change of perspective. When the perspective changes, everything changes. Somebody comes in that door with a blindfold on, you stand them over in the corner and open, take the blindfold off. They look here, they see the windows, they see this part of the ceiling, they see the park. Take them out, turn them round three times, bring them back in the same room, stand them on the other side, 
and take the blindfold off and they can see the door, they can see the fireplace, they can see the floor. Same room, different perspective. Mindfulness, same life, different perspective. But one where you have the choice about what your mind does. And the mind is key to everything. Notice the difference between the lonely people and the non-lonely people. Something in the mind means that those interactions is fulfilling for the non-lonely guys, not fulfilling for the others. First step to changing any of this, anything usefully, other than beating yourself into a new habit instead of an old habit, that's the way that we do it, force, 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 new habit, new habit, works, fine, but that's how you train dogs. Yeah, human beings, it is, Human beings, we want freedom. We want choice. We want to be able to change. We don't want to enforce a new habit because what happens when that habit becomes a problem? What we do is enforce a new habit. No. There comes a point where that becomes impossible. So if you have the freedom of choice to apply your mind to whatever you choose, then there's no greater freedom than that. That's one of the reasons that I teach this. So, there you go, that's mindfulness allows, allows you to come back to now. What happens when we're here? How, how do we get from unfulfillment to fulfillment with human beings? And so there's a whole, the, in the, the Buddhist tradition, there's a whole repertoire, huge repertoire of practices known as metabhavna, practice of loving kindness. So largely we do what we do because of our emotions drive us to do it. Um, You know, part of habit creation is is aligning our emotions to to get a particular outcome. And once that happens, you know, if if we're doing the same thing on the same day, we we get, it becomes unsatisfactory if we're not doing it. So, and, and the unsatisfactoriness is the emotion and the emotions pushing you back to doing that thing. So this is what it's like to be human. But what we want to be able to do is to connect with other people in a useful way and, and to understand what our emotional relationship is to others and to ourselves. And so this is where metabhavna works. And it, and it works not by looking at dark side of emotions, the un, uncomfortable side of emotions. We're using the comfortable emotions to understand all of our mind, including the uncomfortable ones. And we can do that. We can also learn two key things. One is to rebalance the world from being one that's, you know, a hostile and unsatisfactory to one that's, being, that's either neutral or satisfactory. And we're able to elevate our mood. It takes a while to be able to elevate your mood, but it, it can be done. So it's a, it's a, there's great studies that prove this. Long-term meditators can elevate their mood. And they do that through practice, practice of the loving-kindness techniques. So what we're going to do is a gratitude meditation now. So if you get yourselves comfortable, elbows by the side, skull as comfortably positioned on top of your spine as possible, noticing the breath, aware of being here in the present moment. And what I'd like you to do is to bring to mind, and don't worry if this is tricky, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. 
There are no absolutes with this. It's a practice, so it doesn't work for you the first time, works the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. And in time, you find something that works for you, and then you move on. So compassion has to be practiced. Forgiveness, learn it like that. Apply it to everything. Compassion, we need to work on it. And so noticing the breath, and bring to mind a being, so it could be a a person, either from the present or from the past, or it could be a creature, could be a pet, from the present or the past. Whatever being it is that brings you a warm feeling when you bring them to mind. A warm feeling of appreciation and connection and if, if it's available, love. Whatever it is that elevates your mood when you encounter that being either from the present or from the past. And so you're noticing the breath, noticing the sensations in your body, and holding the the image, could be the image, the memory, thoughts, the sense of that being, that person, that creature, whatever it might happen to be, whatever brings that being to mind. And notice how you feel and allow yourself to feel that way. And what we do is we we now say a mantra in our head do this on the out breath. So breathing in normally and you say in your mind, may they be well, may they be happy, may they find peace of mind, may they be well, may they be happy, may they find peace of mind. Just holding that image of that being in your mind that brings you a warm feeling. Allowing yourself to feel that warm feeling. That's why it's there. Now, bring to mind a neutral person. And a neutral person is somebody whose name you don't know, but who you encounter. And you have yet to make your mind up about whether you like or dislike them. So it could be a neighbour you don't know by name or a colleague you don't know by name or somebody that you see around or someone at a local shop or a driver or somebody at the railway station. doesn't matter who it is. Bring to mind that neutral person, whoever they are. And could have an image in their mind. could just be the sense of interacting with them and then you say in your mind may they be well all on the out breath may they be happy may they find peace of mind
they be well, may they be happy, may they find peace of mind. And notice how that makes you feel. And now bring to mind a difficult person, not your arch enemy, only somebody who may have said something inconsiderate, thoughtless, unhelpful, maybe even a little bit rude over the last week or two, living in a city of 8 million people. Difficult not to have encounters where there is friction. So, you know, this is somebody who's irritated you or frustrated you or annoyed you. Not somebody that's done terrible things or hurt you directly. And sometimes they don't know they're doing it. Other times they're indifferent. That kind of thing. That's what we're looking for. And so hold that difficult person in mind. And on separate out-breaths, say in your mind, may they be well, may they be happy, may they find peace of mind. Just words. If you're starting this the first time, probably don't notice an emotional response to much of this. You might notice a lot, but it varies. But first it's just words. May they be well. May they be happy. May they find peace of mind. And notice how you feel. And now bring to mind your image of yourself, however you see yourself. Could be the you that looks at you out of the bathroom mirror, how you feel other people see you, your latest selfie, whatever it is. It could be an image, could be the thoughts you have about yourself, how you feel you are, doesn't matter. Bring to mind yourself. And you say in your mind, may I be well, may I be happy, may I find peace of mind. And so this can be tricky, all of these can be tricky. If it's tricky, it's just words. Just repeat the words, may I be well. May I be happy. May I find peace of mind. And now again bring to mind the being that brings you the warm feeling. Hold them in mind from the present or from the past.
and notice how you feel. Allow yourself to feel like that. Notice the breath. If you've got a warm feeling, notice that when you're breathing in, you're breathing in that warm feeling, and as you breathe out, you're pushing it out throughout your entire body, out to your fingers, down to your toes. And then breathing in, noticing what you can smell, noticing what you can taste. And in your very own time, return your attention to your surroundings. It took me a while to figure out what that does. That's a huge thing, what we just did there. It's immensely powerful. All of these actors... They they represent our world. So I I call them actors, for want of a better word. The neutral person, who's the neutral person? There's actually 8 million of them. Well, it's a lot more, there's 8 billion of them. We don't know their names, and most of our interactions are with neutral people. You're driving along, there's a neutral person in front of you. You know, there's a person that walks out across the road, they're a neutral person. There are neutral people everywhere. And what we want to do is we want to understand how we react to neutral people. There's nothing to be done, but we know then. So what happens for for many of us, and doesn't happen for everyone, some people find this tricky, don't worry if you do, you just repeat this, repeat it, repeat it, it works, it's magic. Um, So we bring to mind the the, the good person, the, the person that gives us a warm feeling, And that's kind of our 10 out of 10 on the happy scale. And then what we're doing is we're comparing that 10 out of 10 with all these other interactions. So neutral people, if you you wish a neutral person well, if you get a little blip of joy and happiness, that's good. If you don't, that doesn't matter. But the more you do this, the the more of of a sense of warmth that you get when you bring neutral people to mind. Same with a difficult person. And all them neutral people, let me and you, let me let you into a little secret. From time to time, they and you are all difficult people, right? So, and, but some people are difficult all the time. I'm sure no one in this room is. Now, what we want to be able to do is understand how that affects us. How does it affect us to, to work with and, in, and to as I said, to work with, to uh, interact with difficult people. And if we develop practices, we want to see progress. And what does progress look like? Well, progress looks like there's more warmth when we bring, in, bring difficult people to mind, less unsatisfactoriness, more warmth. So we can, we're learning to elevate our mood bit by bit. And it's, it's like a laboratory. We're learning what our, our, our reaction is. And then there's ourselves. I, I, first time I did this, I thought, yeah, cool, compassionate Robert. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the neutral people. I'm even all right with the... Uh, I was quite delighted, actually. Yeah, I, I, could, I can wish the, the difficult people well. Came to me, nothing. So my, my sense of self, I wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with it. 
And you notice this kind of thing happening throughout this. But it doesn't matter, because what you do is you just repeat, repeat the exercise, repeat the exercise. And then we, we come back to the warm feeling, because that's the way we want to end the session. We want to end it with a warm, warm, warm feeling. So this is the kind of practice that we can do to help us to reduce friction in our interactions. Mindfulness helps us to extract the most we can from our communications with people and the gratitude meditations help to take off the rough edges of our interactions. And then you know, hopefully we'll move, if, if we do find it difficult, gaining fulfilment from interacting with difficult people and neutral people uh, and then move over to becoming more fulfilled, we can do that. And in 1996, I left an entire industry and started retraining uh, because I hated people. You ever heard these people say, oh, I hate people? I was one of those. Yeah. I, I could have had a, like an I hate people t-shirt. Yeah. I kind of like people now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, even difficult people, so it transpires. Um, and so you can, we, can, we can learn to connect. And, and it's, it's three steps forward, two steps back. Three steps forward, two steps back. That's what progress looks like. Almost half the time you're actually going back. doesn't matter. Look back far enough and see how far you've come. That's the thing to do. These, these, things, they, these meditations don't change you straight away, but they change you in an ongoing basis. Okay, so that's a, a little insight into loneliness.